Good morning. Happy Easter. And welcome to Sovereign Grace Church. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. We're glad to have you. If you will, turn with me to Hebrews 13 if you haven't already. This is the text we'll be looking at this morning for Easter Sunday. And you might wonder what it has to do with Easter. You'll see. By God's providence, we landed in the conclusion of Hebrews on Easter Sunday, which has quite a good text with regard to Easter. But frankly, it wouldn't really matter where we land in the scripture on Easter Sunday, because everything we talk about has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the whole reason we gather every Lord's Day. So Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this word of grace, this exhortation and benediction. We pray that we would hear this good word with regard to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his kindness toward us, and that your spirit would work so that those who do not believe would believe, so that those of us who believe would be built up in grace, so we'd look ever more to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, our Lord and Savior, the one who went to the cross and conquered the grave was crucified for our transgressions and resurrected for our justification. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christians around the world, as you know, are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. And every year when we gather on Easter Sunday, I remind you that the purpose of every Lord's Day or every Sunday is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, in fact, why we gather on Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the awe-inspiring fact that makes Christianity what it is as Christianity. Jesus is not, I want you to hear this, Jesus is not the first, nor is Jesus the last man to be called the Messiah of Israel. Others made claims to that. He is not the first man, nor the last man to have taught large crowds and performed various miracles. He's not the first man nor the last man to be crucified on a cross. He's not the first man nor the last man to be brought back to life from the dead. But he is the first man and the only man to be the son of God born of a virgin. He is the first man and the only man to be the second Adam. And what I mean by that is to succeed where Adam failed, to be tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He is the first man and the only man to be himself the very word of God speaking to us. He is the first man and the only man to be crucified as holy, innocent, and undefiled in every regard. And to our point today, he is the first man and the only man to bodily resurrect from the grave and ascend to heaven to rule and reign over the earth. That is central to the Christian gospel 
This is why we worship Jesus Christ. This is why we look to Jesus alone for salvation from death, because death is the penalty for sin. The very day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they plunged humanity into sin and death. That very day, the first word the Lord spoke to Adam and Eve was a curse upon the serpent. And that curse upon the serpent was a word of grace to us. God promised to send the seed of the woman who would conquer Satan, sin, and death. Jesus Christ is that seed of the woman. He is God incarnate, God and man, who kept the law we failed to keep. He is the Holy One who became sin for us. He is the blessed Son of God who became the curse on the cross for us. He is the living one who became death for us. He died on the cross and was buried on what we now call Good Friday. He resurrected from the grave, conquering sin and death on what we now call Easter Sunday. But this is not just an annual holiday. This is the central message of Christianity. It's the message around which we base our lives as Christians. Jesus is God's final word to us. And what a gloriously good word he is. The apostle who wrote Hebrews, I think it's the apostle Paul, wrote Hebrews to exhort us to keep our eyes on Christ. He calls him, in fact, the author and perfecter of our faith. He exhorts us to remind us to hear God's final word throughout this book. Not to look away to some competing ideologies, some competing religious practices, some other thing by which you might wander off and base your life upon, but to look to Christ and to hear, to listen to what he says. Thus, the letter to the book of Hebrews starts this way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, speaking of the Old Testament, in the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the final word. So as we close out Hebrews... I want to finish with an emphasis on the exhortation that we began with. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is our only hope. Jesus is the grace of God to us. In considering him, I want to take the text in three parts. So in verses 18 through 19, we're going to look at a request that's being made. It's actually a request for prayer in verses 18 and 19. In verses 20 and 21, we're going to look at an offer. What's the offer? There's an offer that is given. It's an offer of a benediction. We'll talk about that, verses 20 21. And then thirdly, in verses 22 through 25, we'll look at an appeal that's being made. It's an appeal to listen. So as we go through, please take note that all three of these parts are bringing our attention back to this gospel message of trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. All three of them. So we're going to look at a request, an offer, and an appeal. So let's look first at the request. What is the request? Look at Hebrews 13, 18. Pray for us. This is probably the apostle using the editorial plural 
In other words, like say we, I say, Teresa, we need to do this. And that either means you need to do this or I need to do this. But it's often a singular. We say it, we, we use that kind of editorial plural. Pray for us. Here's that kind of thing. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. What he's saying is, pray for us. We know we have a clear conscience currently. That's what the apostle is saying. I have a clear conscience because I've desired to act honorably in all things. And so I've done that, but I want to keep doing that. I want to keep acting honorably in all things. I want to continue to have a clear conscience. Look what he says in verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. In other words, keep praying for us because I want to continue to have a clean conscience and I want to be able to come and visit you. I want to be restored to you. I want to share your company. It's the same kind of thing we hear Paul say in Romans 1. Pray for me that I'll be able to come to you so I'll be refreshed by your company and you'll be refreshed by my company so that we might encourage one another. Paul's asking the Hebrew Christians to pray for him. Why? Why is he asking for prayer? Well, he has a clear conscience both as a man and as a minister. And he wants to continue in that clear conscience. He also wants to be able to return to them and share their company for mutual encouragement. You might not remember, but there's more than one occasion in which the Apostle Paul says, I need you to be praying for me that I might speak boldly as I ought. Like, it's not easy when you have lots of opposition, when you're in prison, when you're tortured, when you're beaten, when you're shipwrecked, when your own churches that you've planted turn against you, like you see with Corinth, for example. It's not easy to keep having a clear conscience of the ministry and keep speaking the truth because it's costly. And so Paul says, pray for us. He wants to keep preaching Christ and him crucified. He wants to keep following Christ as we looked at in Hebrews 13, 13, 14. He wants to keep following Christ out to Golgotha and sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. He wants his whole life to honor Jesus, his whole message to proclaim Jesus. And he wants to continue walking alongside those in Christ's church. That's what he's asking for prayer for. It's really that simple. Listen, Sovereign Grace, we ask you to continue to pray that way for us as your elders. Pray for your missionaries in the same manner. Pray for us. We will not endure apart from the grace of God. So pray for us. John Gill, an 18th century Baptist minister, comments, We want to be ministers who continue faithfully dispensing the word of truth without any regard to the favor or frowns of men as good stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what we want for our pastors and our missionaries. We want to faithfully dispense the word of truth without any regard to the favor or frowns of men. We want to follow Christ outside the gate and share his humiliation. We want to walk in holiness and we want to preach Christ. So pray for us. Pray for us that we might be faithful pastors who know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pray this is true of us as men and as ministers. Pray for us. That's the request. Pray for us. What's the offer? Let's look secondly at the offer. This really will be the longest section of the sermon, verses 20 and 21. We call this offering... You might have a bold subtitle in your Bible that says benediction. Um, Bene, good, diction, saying. A benediction is a good saying. That's all it means. What's a benediction? The end of the service, I offer a benediction. It's a good saying. 
What is that? It's an offering of a word of grace to the church so that we close our service with a benediction because we want God to be the last speaker, if you will. He has the last word in which he speaks grace to you. He speaks something good to you. That's what a benediction is. It's an offering of a word of grace to the church. And inasmuch as the apostle is inspired by the Holy Spirit, you can hear Jesus Christ, the head of the church, speaking to his people a good word, thus speaking to you. So let's look at Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now I want to break this benediction into three parts. The author of grace, the purchase of grace, and the nature of grace. The author of grace, the purchase of grace, and the nature of grace. That's what I want to break it into. So let's look first at the author of grace. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who? You guys see that phrase? Now may the God of peace who? The first thing we hear is this phrase, the God of peace. This is a reference to the Father who sent His Son for us. But it's an interesting way to refer to Him. It's not, now may the Father, who, it's may the God of peace, who. Why do we need to hear a good word from the God of peace? Sometimes when you're walking through the biblical text, you don't just want to gloss this, you want to stop and ask the question, why are we told that the author of this grace that we have is the God of peace? Because we need to hear a good word from the God of peace. Why? Precisely because as sinners, as those who rebelled against God's law and went our own way, we are enemies of God. We're his enemies. We talk about it a lot. I hear this all the time. I don't need religion. I need a relationship. There's a lot of problems with that statement because it's not particularly helpful in a variety of regards. You actually do need a religion. It's called Christianity, and it's good. And you also need a relationship. But I want to say this, you already actually have a relationship with God. Even as an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever in here, you already have a relationship with God. It's just that you're his enemies. That's how you're related to him. The issue isn't whether we need a relationship with God. The issue is that we need a restored relationship with God. We need a different kind of relationship with God than we were born into. We were born into a relationship with God in which we are his enemies. And we want to be his friends. That's the nature of our relationship. Apart from Christ, you're enemies of God. You're not as friends. You're not as adopted sons. You're not as heirs. You're as enemies. If you're a human being in this room, which all of you are, I know we're a little confused as to what things are anymore. You don't have to claim to be a human being to be one. You don't have to believe you're a human being to be one. You just are a human being. Do you see how that works? If you're a human being in this room, then as a child of Adam... You're a sinner. And as a sinner, you're an enemy of God. God does not call you friends. Yet, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? Why did the Father promise to send the Son in the Old Testament? Why does he promise to send him? He promised him because he loves us. Even as his enemies. He loves us. Why did the Father in the fullness of time send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law? He sent Him because He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
Why did the Father pour out His wrath for our sin upon His Son on the cross? He did so because He loves us. Here in His love. Not that we first loved God, but that He first loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation, a wrath bearer for our sins. We rebelled against God, but He is the God of peace. He sought reconciliation with us. Think of that. He created us. He preserves us. We rebel against Him, and He seeks to save us. Why did He give His own Son? So that we might be reconciled to Him, and so be His friends. Here's a question I have, though. What moves? This is going to be a really inappropriate question. Are you ready? What moves God to do that? How is that an inappropriate question? Because God can't be moved anywhere. But I'm going to ask it that way anyway. What moves God to do that? Does he look down from heaven and see something in us that moves him to love us and seek peace with us? Think about your life. Be brutally honest with yourself. Does God look down from heaven and think, so sweet. I'm just moved. I can't help myself but to save you. No. Rather, God sees in us that which deserves just condemnation, as any just judge would. So why does he seek reconciliation with us then? Because that's who he is. He is love. Do you hear that? He is love. You don't move him to love. He is love. He is the God of peace. God is love in itself. He is grace in itself. He is justice in itself. To quote a friend of mine, out of the unbounded fullness of his being, God loves us. By the love with which he is loving, he loves us. He is grace, and by that grace, he loves us. He is gracious to us. This is gloriously good news, because it means you cannot increase his love, nor diminish his love. You simply receive his love in Christ, and you receive all the benefits of that. God did not send Jesus so that he might love you. It wasn't like God looked down and said, you're my enemy, I would like to be able to love you, But in order to do that, someone has to stand in your place to provoke me to love you. He sent Jesus because he loves you. He pours out grace upon grace for us in Christ. And that leads us to what the God of peace did. He is the author. The God of peace is the author of grace. But what did he do? He sent his own son to purchase grace. So I want to look there. He's the author of grace, but he's also telling us that he's the one who sent Jesus to purchase grace for us. Look at Hebrews 13.20 again. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let me break this down for you a bit. First, Jesus called the great shepherd of the sheep. Notice that label. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. If you remember the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God is the great shepherd of the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's the Lord. Now, it's true the Lord did provide human shepherds to care for and feed and protect his people. However, when those shepherds failed to faithfully fulfill their calling, God said he would come and shepherd them himself. You see that in Ezekiel 34. He said he would send the son of David to be their shepherd. That's why we hear Jesus say in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do for his sheep? Jesus goes on to say this. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
The father gave to his son a people and the son laid down his life for them. Christ loved the church. You guys remember, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He shed his blood at the cross to cut the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Christ purchased grace for all his sheep. The Father, the God of peace, is the author of grace. Christ, the Son, is the one who purchases grace for us. So who are his sheep? He purchases grace for all his sheep. So who are his sheep? Well, his sheep are all those who trust in him, all those who follow him. So maybe I should ask this question. Is Jesus your pastor? I can be your pastor, but you're still in your sins. (laughs) If it's just me, I'm merely an under-shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd, and if Jesus is your pastor, he will save you from all your sins. I, as a pastor, can only tell you about him who can save you from all your sins. But I can't save you from all your sins. So is Jesus your pastor? Jesus is the great shepherd. And if Jesus is your pastor, he will save you from all your sins. Do you trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you rest your life in his care? Do you hear his voice when he calls you in the word and follow him? Do you trust and obey the great shepherd of your souls as he leads you through the under shepherd speaking his word in his church? See, he gathers his sheep into a body we call the church, and he gives them under shepherds who speak his word to them. Listen, you're not a Christian because as some wandering sheep out there, you heard the shepherd's call and looked his direction for a minute. Thought, that's a nice shepherd. I like him. And then wandered off on your own path. If you don't follow him back into the sheep pen, in his church, to continue to hear his voice, that look in his direction for a moment is fruitless. That's not what the grace of faith is. When the shepherd calls you, his sheep hear his voice and they go to him and he brings them all the way home. Now we need to deal with uh, an interesting issue here. We're told that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead. But note how this is said. Look at verse 20 again. And grammatically, I'm going to help you out by pulling out that little phrase, the great shepherd of the sheep for a moment, because it's almost like a parenthetical comment. I want you to hear this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Now notice the phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is interesting. Grammatically, what's being said here is that Jesus was brought again from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. He was brought again from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. What does that mean? See, how was his resurrection from the dead by the blood I mean, that seems contradictory. What does blood have to do with resurrection? See, wouldn't we be saying he died by the shedding of his blood, not he was resurrected by the blood of the everlasting covenant? Well, let me try to explain the use of that little word by, by the blood. Prepositions are funny things because they have so much flexibility built into them that we can sometimes be confused. There's a variety of ways a preposition like by can be used. But let me tell you one of the ways it's not being said. Really, first, what's not saying? By is not being used to say that Christ's blood was the effective power that God used to raise Christ from the dead. It's not saying, listen, God lacked the power to raise Christ from the dead, but Christ's blood gave God that power to raise him from the dead. That's not what it's saying. Rather, by is being used to refer to moral authority. 
a moral right, the moral authority which the blood of the covenant brought to Christ's resurrection. What do I mean by that? Because that might, you might go, what does moral authority have to do with Christ's resurrection? Let me address that. Whenever God makes a covenant in the Bible, he makes several. He makes a covenant with his people, and when he does make a covenant with people, he makes promises to them. And those promises make up the substance of that covenant. Like when you got married, you made promises. When you stood at the altar and you made promises to one another, those promises are your covenant. Your ring is not your covenant. I took off my wedding ring. I'm not single now. I'm still married. And I put it on. I'm not magically married now. This is just a sign. My vows, that's the substance of the covenant I made. And those covenants, when they were made in the Bible, were always cut in blood. Thankfully, we don't do that in marriage covenants, but they're cut in blood. In the old covenant, God made promises and gave commands to his people. And the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, Exodus 24, covenant's cut and the blood is thrown on the altar, representing where God is, God's word, and the blood is thrown on the people. And whenever the blood was thrown on you, you were saying this, if I break this covenant, may what happened to that animal happen to me. Hear that? The animal slaughtered in front of you and the animal's blood is thrown on you. And you're saying, I promise to keep this covenant. And if I violate it, let what happened to that animal happen to me. Well, God had given the people the law and they said, all the words of this law we will do. And before he was done writing them on tablets of stone, they were already breaking the terms of the covenant. So the people were saying, if we violate the covenant, may you cut us to pieces like you did that animal. That covenant with Moses was temporary and it was typological, meaning it was pointing forward to something greater. The people violated the terms of the old covenant. As you know, if you read the Old Testament, they violated it over and over again. Thus, they deserve to be cut down. But Jesus steps in and fulfills that law. In the fullness of time, listen to the language, Paul in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, as God promised, that's speaking about prophetic time. That's not the end of all things. That's in the prophetic fulfillment. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, he's a man from a woman. Born of woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. As Jesus then went to the cross to be cut down, he went to the cross to be cut down in the place of his people. Do you hear what's happening there? They made a covenant promise. They broke it. They deserved to be cut down. And Jesus went to the cross and was cut down in their place. He took our blood guilt upon himself. Listen, if I went to the cross to die for your sins, I would never emerge from the grave. I would never emerge from the grave just through death for my own sins, let alone if I added yours to it. I'm a sinner. I deserve the penalty of death. The grave is fitting. Hear that. The grave is fitting for a sinner like me, and the grave is fitting for sinners like you. The wages of sin is death. And we don't like to think about death, but it's coming for us all. Time is on the march. Death is coming for you. I've made this analogy before. When you're young, you feel like death is over in Asia somewhere. On its way, you don't even think about it. Then you close in on 50 and you feel like death is across the street peeping into your house, right? <laughs> you know, just gotten a lot closer. <laughs> Things have caught up with you. But here's the inevitable truth. Death is coming for you. It's coming for you. It's fitting for you. 
But Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross in our place. And he paid the full penalty for our sins once and for all. And he is holy, innocent, and undefiled. Thus, the grave is not fitting for him. So the God of peace raised him from the dead. What this means is that the God of peace raised him from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant because the debt, listen to this, the debt was paid in full. The demands of the law were met. The reconciliation of God and his people was accomplished. That's what he's getting at here. John Owen said it this way, Christ, as the great shepherd of the sheep, was brought into the state of death by the sentence of the law and was thence led, recovered, and restored by the God of peace. Why? The law being fulfilled and answered, the sheep being redeemed by the death of the shepherd, the God of peace, in order to evidence that peace was now perfectly made by an act of sovereign authority, brings him again into the state of life in a complete deliverance from the charge of the law. Sovereign grace, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is the source of the whole era of grace in which we now live. The God of peace raised Jesus our Lord from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant. That means the law has been fulfilled. The charge of sin and condemnation that stands against you has been answered. You've been delivered. Listen to how Owen goes on to speak of that. Had not the will of God been satisfied, atonement made for sin, the church sanctified, the law accomplished, and the threatenings satisfied. Christ could not have been brought again from the dead. The death of Christ, if he had not risen, would not have completed our redemption. We should have been yet in our sins, for evidence would have been given that atonement was not made. The bare resurrection of Christ, or the bringing him from the dead, would not have saved us. For so any other man may be raised by the power of God. But the bringing again of Christ from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant is that which gives assurance of the complete redemption and salvation of the church. You guys hear what he's saying there? God can raise anybody from the dead he wants to. And if Jesus had died on the cross and not raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. But what's remarkable about the death and resurrection of Christ is Christ as holy, innocent, and undefiled goes to the cross and takes the penalty of the law due to us upon himself and he shuts the mouth of the law which, if you will, threatens you with death. He fulfills it. He satisfies God's wrath. And that's proven by his resurrection from the dead. Because his walking out of the grave demonstrates to his church that the law has been satisfied. That sin and death have been put away. That Satan has been conquered. That's why he is resurrected from the dead by the blood of the everlasting covenant. Because he secured our redemption and our salvation. It's complete in him. So the God of peace is the author of grace and Christ in his death and resurrection purchased grace for us. Done. The debt is paid in full. So now let's look at the nature of grace, verse 21. Hebrews 13, 21. And as we look at the nature of grace, I want you to note the purpose for which God reconciled you to Christ. I'm really talking about nature as to its purpose. Verse 21. We can really start it with may the God of peace because we'll just bring that down there may the god of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen here's the nature of grace as to its purpose grace's purpose is to sanctify us to the glory of god it equips that word equips 
there to equip you with everything good can also mean restore you or perfect us with everything good that you may do his will. Friends, we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. And as image bearers of God, to bear someone's image is to reflect the truth about them back to them. You look in a mirror and you see the truth about you. The older you get, the less pleasant that truth is, but there it is. You see it. And as image bearers, we're supposed to reflect the truth about God. Here's the problem. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we often reflect the lie about him. We are made to glorify him, to reflect his character to a watching world, and rather, we reflect sin. The fall into sin marred us and corrupted us so that we are not what we were made to be. We do not, in fact, glorify God and enjoy him forever. As sinners, we reflect a lie. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace has come to restore nature. God's grace comes and restores nature. God may have saved you where you were, but never imagine that God is so lacking in grace that he will leave you there. Christ has saved us to be what we were meant to be. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You've been crucified with Christ, you've been raised with him. So that Paul will say, I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those who have the grace of faith bear the fruit that comes from that gracious root. What is God's will for you? What's God's will for my life? Teenagers ask this question all the time. The older you get and the more mobile the world is and the more able you are to live in multiple places and move from location to location, how difficult it must be to struggle with God's will for your life. Then you just back up a couple hundred years. So much easier, right? Not living then, it would have been horrible because they didn't have anesthesia and all those kinds of things. But think about how my uh, indoor plumbing, think about all the things they lacked. But <laughs> figuring out God's will for their life was a lot easier. Like, I was born in this town, I'm raised in this town, my dad's a farmer, I'm going to be a farmer. That's it. What's God's will for your life? I'm going to farm. Why? Because my dad's a farmer, and my grandpa was a farmer, and that's what I'm going to do. Who are you going to marry? Well, that girl there. Why do you know that's God's will for you? Because she's the least distant related person to me. <laughs> there aren't a lot of other choices around here, right? Like, those are the things you're left with. It's not real hard to figure out God's will for your life in that now it's like man, you don't even grow up in the same place you're born in one place you grow up somewhere else you go to school here you go to school there you go to college there you move across the country you have some little gig overseas for a while who knows what you're doing you're so mobile what's god's will for my life who's the one person on the whole globe i'm supposed to marry like look how world big your world just got wouldn't it have been easier who's the girl in my little town i'm supposed to marry now who's the gal on the whole planet which one right these things have gotten much harder so there's sir. What's God's will for my life? I get asked that all the time. How do I know God's will for my life? You want to know the answer? Your sanctification. This is God's will for you. First Thessalonians 4. Your sanctification. Holiness. Holiness. So here's the answer. What's God's will for your life? Be holy and do what you want. There it is. Who should I marry? Be holy and marry who you want. What job should I do? Be holy and do what job you want. Because if you're holy, you're going to make wise decisions. 
What's God's will for you? Your sanctification. And he is the author and finisher of that work by his spirit. So we have a request that pastors would be faithful to Christ, an offer of a good word of grace in Christ, and finally an appeal. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 to 25. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Now, I really dealt with verses 23 to 25 in the introduction to the letter of Hebrews. And though the author here says, I've written to you briefly, you may not have felt like the letter was particularly brief because we've been in it for a couple years. But I really want to focus this morning as our last point on, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I'm thankful to conclude here this morning with an appeal. What is the appeal? I appeal to you, brothers. What is it? Bear with my word of exhortation. I appeal to you. Here's the appeal to the church. Listen. Listen to what I've written. Hear. Trust. Obey the word of God. See, we've been exhorted from the beginning of Hebrews to the end of Hebrews to look to Jesus. That's been the exhortation. Hebrews chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We're supposed to consider Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, you're supposed to consider Jesus. I mean, it just keeps on going through. Hebrews chapter 12, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Here comes the exhortation over and over and over again. Look to Jesus. Listen to his word. Don't be dull of hearing Hebrews chapter 5. Don't be like Israel who didn't listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through Hebrews chapter 4. Listen, listen, listen. Look to Jesus. Listen to his word. You're just being urged to do that over and over again, to trust him and to obey him. If you want to sum up the Christian life, it's really that simple. You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And you listen to what he says in his word. And listen, I mean listen, not listen like the kind of listening you know when your wife says to you, which I hear all the time when she says, when Teresa's talking and she says whatever she's saying. And then, I don't mean that rudely, but you know, she's talking and then she says to me, are you listening to me? And I say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And she knows I'm not actually listening, right? I'm, I can repeat exactly what she said, but I'm not paying attention. And so when she says, listen, she's meaning pay attention, Pay attention. So he's saying here, pay attention. Listen to what I'm saying. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That kind of hearing, listening with faith and obedience. Listen, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my exhortation. This is the sum and substance of the Christian life. You look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and you listen to him in his word. That's it. It's hard to do, but it isn't complicated. Look to Jesus, listen to him in his word. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me in this word of exhortation. The apostle ends the letter reminding the people once again to listen. You know why? It's so easy to look away from Christ and other things. And it's so easy to listen to the siren call of the world. So easy. So listen. Sovereign Grace, we've heard the exhortation in these many sermons through Hebrews. So let me end with this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do not listen intently to the glorious doctrine in this letter and then walk away. Nor feel occasionally convicted by the exhortations and walk away. Rather, trust what's being said. Obey what's being commanded. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Listen to Jesus, God's final and best word to you. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for Christ and his work on our behalf. We pray that you would make us a prayerful people, that we would depend always on grace, knowing the weakness and frailty of our human flesh, how prone we are to wander. May we pray for one another that we would continue in grace, cause us to look to Christ, to not be distracted and look away, cause us to listen to him, to hear what he says in his word, to trust him and to obey him. Father, may we hear the exhortation the apostles given in this book to the Hebrews, this letter that was sent to them, and that your spirit superintended for the church in every age. May we hear what Christ our head is saying. May we hear what the spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name. Amen.